0: Episode 244 of the Bevan James Hour Show, an interview with David Robson. Radio team, welcome along to episode 244 of the Bivin James. I'll show you a fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of exercise so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. I'm going to be honest. I'm actually in Australia right now. Now I've recorded this before I'm in Australia, so I'm not in Australia as I'm recording it, but I'm in Australia as I release the episode to the world. And uh, and so today's shows uh, it's the bits before and ending bit. i gonna be really quick, and um, because. Uh, I'm on holiday, basically it's my time for holiday, I've went to Australia to do a couple of days work for Les Mills to present at a big big fitness event, and then um, my daughter who lives in Cairns is coming to see us, by now I think I've already seen her, we went to see the show Hamilton, which I haven't seen yet, uh, but I'm really looking forward to seeing, Um, and we're just having some unwind time, it's really interesting, one thing over the last couple of years is uh, my wife and I work extremely hard, as most people do nowadays, um, but the reason we're normally able to do it is because we take good holidays. We take quite a few holidays in a year, so we we aim for six to seven weeks off work a year, um, and before COVID, and we work like we work a lot. So you know our kind of theory is work hard, enjoy the downtime. So we would take three or four weeks off of Christmas, and often do three or four weeks over winter, depending on the holiday. Uh, but in, in COVID, we didn't do it. So in COVID, I think the longest we had off was like six days. And often that was quite rushed as well. So we haven't had like the big breaks. And even like you know, one year, you know, one of the periods like over Christmas time, I had my back go bad on me. So so basically, there's been like two and a half years of no proper holidays. And it's really important to understand the cost of that on my life. Like we're fine, we've survived. And, And when we think of the people out there on the scale of the effects of COVID on people's lives. We've had it extremely easy, so I'm not complaining. But when you've got this tool, that's a really important tool for you to recharge, rewind, and come back to life in a fired up way. It's, it's 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 something that we've really noticed, and I, I think both my wife and I would honestly say that the fatigue level that we're in right now is kind of been this build-up of two and a half years. And this trip we're in right now, we're doing basically seven days really because I've got two days of work in it, so it's like a 10-day trip. Um, So it's not the longer kind of holiday. You know, I don't know if you've been lucky enough in life, when you've done that three-week trip, or, 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 or even like a six-week trip, I think the longest we've done is five. And you know, you're halfway through a trip, and you think, "Man, I've still got three weeks to go." And we, we haven't had that, that this holiday is not that, but it's just getting that recharge in place. And and but maybe that's just a really important thing to think about right now. Is during this COVID time, have there been some tools that you haven't been able to apply? Because of the conditions, like we haven't been able to travel internationally, so we haven't been able to get that unwind. That's really important for both Joe and I. Um, and if so, how do you bring them back into your life? And to be honest, I would have preferred to have another three-week holiday. Couldn't fit into our timetable at this moment. Uh, that will That will happen at Christmas time, and then at the end or mid-year year, next year. Um, and you know, just how do you bring that back into your life? Because for me. I've just, you know, like I'm fine. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm far from in a bad place, but I have noticed a difference. You know, I, I, you know, I'm really looking forward to this holiday. Before, you know, I'm about to get on the plane to do it. So, just something for you to think about in your life. What's the era of your life where maybe, just maybe, you're. Falling away from a habit that was really good for you before COVID that you can bring back into your life. Now today's show, I've got a really good interview. And actually, this is an interview we recorded for my other podcast, my I Am Talk podcast. I'm actually releasing it on this podcast before we release it on I Am Talk. And the reason is because before we are going away, we just had a lot to do. And I just thought instead of me doing a Bevan show for this podcast would put this interview up and the interview is actually really good because my other podcast is a triathlon long course triathlon podcast so for some of you you might find interest in it but it's not really for this audience it's kind of a very specific thing for a very specific audience but this book is called the expectation effect and it's how your mindset can transform your life and John my podcast host on my other podcast started reading this book and he heard an interview on radio New Zealand which is the big radio station in New Zealand and John said this guy's amazing I've got you know I've got to buy his book and he started buying his book started reading it and he said it's be really like John John was saying it's Been helping him to apply some really cool tools in some areas that he needed to sharpen up on. And so I haven't actually read the book myself, but it comes highly recommended and it's it's selling extremely well on Amazon. So it's obviously a pretty great book. And the book is called The Expectation Effect again. It's how your mindset can transform your life, and it by a guy called David Robson. And that's who we've got on the interview today. Now you're gonna see that this interview is an interview that both John and I present because it is an interview that was designed to be on my other podcast. And at times we do talk kind of like about the athlete um, and the athlete experience, but I still think even if you're not necessarily like a triathlete or even an athlete as such, there's some really good insight in this interview. So I think you'll get a lot out of this interview. So I'm gonna put that on in a second. Before we do, I just want to say a big thank you to the patrons of the show. Uh, if you want to become a patron, go to www. Bevan James, I always go to support or podcast, support me and donate some of your hard money my way each time I release an episode of the show now on that front um I want to say thank you to those people who are patrons we've got Michael the Hammer Noak we've got Renee the Hawk Whores we've got Michael Hardcore O'Kane uh Samuel Melino Weaver Mysterious Man and Donald the Explorer James if you want to come patron go through that process also if you want to get my new book I will make you passionate about exercise, go to passionaboutexercise.com, you get the book, if you buy the book through the website you get the book, you also get 12 free workouts which I've designed for total beginners, and you also get my goal setting course, my 7 day goal setting course, and it's a goal setting course that's designed to help you actually get a plan in place so it considers all the important areas of your life, and at the end of 7 days you've got a plan for the next moment in your life, so go to passionaboutexercise.com to support my book. Anyway, here is the interview with David Robson right now.
1: Okay, guys, um, today's guest is called David Robson. He's the author of The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life. Uh, If you want to get a hold of the book, we'll have links in the show notes. Um, And then the book, David takes us on a tour of the cutting-edge research that reveals for the many profound ways that our expectations shape our experience. Uh, It brings together loads of case studies and evidence-based science uh, and uncovers new techniques that we can all use to improve our fitness, productivity, intelligence, health, and happiness. So the book's not necessarily targeted at uh, at athletes, but there's certainly a lot in there for athletes. And there's one chapter in particular we'll, we'll focus on. So I heard this um, interview with David on Radio New Zealand down here a while ago, and uh, was fascinated by it, and started reading the book. And my progress has been stalled a little bit from too much watching of the Commonwealth Games, um, but it's <laughs> awesome. So uh, welcome along to the show, David.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I can't wait to chat.
1: Um, Right, before we start on the book, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your your sort of background, because I know in the book you said you're not necessarily uh, an athlete. Uh, I think your comments were you were formerly a reluctant exerciser. So tell us a bit about yourself and and your background.
2: Yeah, that's totally it. So I mean, my kind of academic background is that, you know, I studied maths at university, uh, specialising in kind of medical statistics, and then I became a science journalist for New Scientist magazine, and then the BBC. Um, And then I've written a couple of books, and The Expectation Effect is my last book. But in terms of, um, you know, my kind of athletics career, which, you know, I haven't had at all. Um, And actually, I found, um, you know, PE lessons at school, uh, just really demoralizing, and I kind of brought those attitudes into later life. Um, So yeah, I was very much a reluctant exerciser, like I knew I had to you know, for the health benefits. So I did go to the gym kind of quite regularly, but I didn't make like great progress. And I think even more importantly, I just found the whole um, process of exercising uh, really unrewarding and um, yeah, actually, you know, quite painful, like just, you know, quite grueling really. And actually learning about the expectation effect has completely transformed that. So now going to the gym is actually one of my favorite activities. So
0: when you go to a book like this, you know, there's so many studies, you know, in so many different areas. How do you kind of go through that process of figuring out what you want to add to the book and and finding
2: all that research? Mm, I mean, I guess like uh, throughout like my 10 years as being a science journalist, I'd actually come across a lot of research, especially on the placebo effect, uh, before I even started to think to write a book about this. Um and then, you know, I, I just kind of kept a folder of all of the interesting um, research I came across and actually the structure really naturally fell into place. You know, it seemed like um, previously we'd only considered the placebo effect, which is one form of expectation effect. We'd only really considered that in the clinical setting. But then the more I looked into it, the more I saw that it stretched to all other areas of life, which could be separated quite neatly. So there's um, food and diet, exercise, stress, Um, kind of our willpower and self-control and then aging and all of that just you know fell um, very neatly into place and and yeah the more I looked the more fascinating I found it which is why I decided I really did want to tell this big story to people.
1: So um, I thought it might be useful before we start just to sort of try to define a few of the terms you're going to probably talk about quite a bit Um, and I know that your book is called The Expectation Effect and it's 200 pages or whatever it is long Um, so trying to define that into a concise sort of Oxford Dictionary um, definition might be tricky but can you maybe explain to us what you mean I think firstly by the expectation effect um, and then maybe just go into, we've all heard of placebo um, just sort of define what you mean by that and also nocebo which is um, a term some some people not, might not be familiar with.
2: Sure, yeah. So the expectation effect I just define as this self-fulfilling prophecy, where our beliefs are shaping, you know, important outcomes through three main mechanisms, and that can be through changes to our perception, changes to our behaviour, and changes to our physiology. Um, and so the placebo effect is one example of this, and it's really been studied very heavily. You know, in the clinical setting with trials of drugs, for example, and placebo comes from the Latin for um, I shall please. And it simply means that if you have positive expectations that treatment is going to be successful, then it's more likely to be successful in many cases, especially for things like um, pain relief, for example. And we know that that does happen through changes in subjective perception, but also changes in our physiology. So the brain can actually produce its own endogenous painkillers. Those endorphins that we have when we um, experience the runner's high, well, they're also released when we have the, um, when we receive a dummy pill, we're told that it's a painkiller. And those chemicals can then in themselves, they help to you know, relieve our suffering. So that's one example. And, you know, really provides, I think, a foundation for our understanding of other expectation effects. It's been so well studied, it kind of proves that our expectations are powerful. Um, Another nocebo effect is really the evil twin of the placebo effect. So the nocebo effect is where you have expectations of becoming sick, and you become sick. And it's through very much the same kinds of mechanisms that can cause the placebo effect is just in the opposite direction. One really common example of this is that if you're taking um, certain pills like antidepressants and your doctor warns you that you might experience headaches, then actually you're more likely to experience a headache because of that warning. And we know that that is caused by changes in the brain's physiology. So things like the vasodilation of the vessels, the blood vessels can actually change as a result of those expectations. And that can then bring about pain. And it's not just imagined pain. It's not just subjective, like it's actually, you know, indistinguishable from when you have a headache from other causes. Mm-hmm. And
1: probably the one other term that I think comes up in your book a lot is what you call the the, sort of the prediction machine. So maybe sort of just explain what you mean by that before we sort of start to delve into a few of uh, the sort of the the case studies that that are peppered through your book.
2: Sure, I mean, the prediction machine is really the kind of underlying, um, I guess, machinery that that causes these expectation effects. And it's so fundamental to the way the brain works. Now, this is a a theory that's been gaining a lot of ground in neuroscience and in particular, the study of consciousness. And and the idea here is that the brain is constantly preempting what's going to happen next. It's kind of forming predictions of, of, you know, the world around it in the moment and then what's going to happen next. And, you know, scientists studying consciousness are really interested in this because that shapes our perception really profoundly. So, you know, the light hitting our retinas is very messy Um, But these simulations that the uh, brain's producing, um, when the brain is acting as this prediction machine, those simulations are actually shaping how the brain processes all of that messy data from the retina. And it can sometimes, uh, you know, kind of delete, you know, bits of data that it doesn't think makes sense, or it can actually add to it resolving ambiguity. You know, often it's correct, sometimes it's wrong, which is why we experience visual illusions occasionally. Now importantly, the prediction machine you know when it's building these simulations, then it's also helping to um prepare the body for the challenges that it thinks it's going to face. so we'll do things like shaping the hormonal balance within the body you know if you if you're going to need a big release of energy, then it will um release adrenaline um it will change things like blood pressure can change the action of the gut you know how long food sits in your gut can be shaped by these simulations so it's actually it's shaping your physical reality in some way what the brain expects to happen will then shape your physical reality
1: Awesome. Now the, the book's broken into to ten chapters, um, all of which the, of what I've read so far is really transferable to, to athletes. But you do have one particular chapter, um, number five, which is called "Faster, Stronger, Fitter: How to Take the Pain Out of Your Out of Exercise." Um, now you kicked off the, that chapter with quite a an interesting anecdote from uh, from the Tour de France. So maybe maybe retell that story as as an example of uh, the power of the placebo.
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, you know, Richard Vivrank uh from the French Festina team, you know, he was um uh like he was really good at the um mountain trials, but I think he struggled with the time trials. And um and he had heard from you know other athletes that there was this amazing kind of substance going around that should actually help to kind of increase his speed and stamina. And so he asked his his uh, uh Swanyu if he could um if he could have some of this uh substance. And you know, this guy, Willie Boot, he uh he wasn't really that keen on giving like a completely new substance to an athlete in the middle of the event. It's not that they were necessarily averse to using banned substances, it was just that, and in fact, you know, they got into a lot of trouble for that afterwards. But he he didn't want the risk of kind of bad side effects to happen, you know, that would threaten the team's chances of success. So he uh Rather than, you know, giving this kind of, it was a kind of milky liquid that you're meant to inject into the buttocks. He just replaced it with, like, you know, salt water or glucose water, like, um, you know, something completely innocuous. Um, but, you know, Bironk really had the uh, time trial of his life. Um, he was just amazed by it. And, you know, he was saying, like, oh, this substance is amazing. Like, we have to <laughs> use it every time. Um, and, you know, it was really clear to to Voot that this was just his expectations and his beliefs that actually um, they had kind of supercharged his performance and you didn't need any magic substance at all to be able to do that. And, you know, I think this is quite well known in athletics and, um, you know, all kinds of sports that actually, you know, self-belief does make a difference. I think what's really important now is that sports scientists and physiologists are beginning to understand how that happens you know, what, what's occurring in the brain, how the prediction machine is boosting performance, and then, you know, what kinds of exercises we can do to kind of use these effects ourselves without, you know, believing that we're taking a banned substance. Uh,
0: in this chapter, you mentioned Tim Noakes a little bit. What did you learn from him in regards to how we actually use the energy systems we use with exercise?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, Tim Noakes has this um, great theory, which I think makes a lot of sense when you consider other expectation effects. And he very much sees it as being a part of, you know, like, um or kind of aligned to, to the other expectation effects, like the placebo effect. And he, he sees that the brain acts as this kind of central governor, he calls it. Um, essentially, it's just, you know, it's almost acting like an accountant. It's just working out kind of how much energy and resources we have in the moment, how much, you know, we need to kind of parcel out to be able to meet our goal without um, risking total exhaustion or injury. And so if it believes it's kind of exceeding its resources, then it will kind of pull back, it puts the brakes on your performance. And that's not caused by necessarily any kind of big physiological change, you know, within your body. It's not caused by, say, like the uh, dangerous buildup of lactic acid. It's actually the brain coming to this judgment and then Um, It's just sending out signals to kind of pull back, to stop your exertion, to to recruit fewer muscle fibres in your legs, for example. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of evidence now that this is true. Um, I mean, one of um, Noakes' own studies, he showed that even when we're exerting at, like, maximum capacity, we're only using 50 to 60% of the muscle fibres within uh, the body, uh, within our limbs. And, you know, if you were really, like, risking exhaustion, like it should be much higher than that. You'd think if you're really like reaching fatigue, physical fatigue, purely physical fatigue, you'd think you'd already be using as many of your fibers as you could. But he believes that actually the brain is super conservative in its estimates. So it's limiting it to 60% just so that you will have enough energy left within you if you do need to use um, your limbs for some other challenge after the race. Um, So I I find that very convincing. And then it it fits with loads of evidence showing that things like placebos can be really useful in um, sports um, performance, as we've seen with baronk sort of carefully controlled trials. We see that actually, you know, when people believe they're taking um, uh, kind of a uh, a shot of really uh, caffeinated coffee, um that actually they can you know their their capacity to lift weights is like so much higher even when they're only taking a decaf shot instead so Hmm. you know um and actually you know these scientists have shown it's almost the effects of caffeine are almost completely caused by the uh expectation of a performance improvement rather than any physiological change so yeah really powerful stuff
1: Mm. Um, You talk about the prediction machine and and how that can influence performance. Um, One example I remembered was... uh, so I think they did a study where some athletes um, were doing some exercise, and they were telling them it was going to be you know really hot and, and whatever temperature it was, but the temperature was actually quite different, and they they obviously did you know um, control mechanisms with that as well. So yeah, it seems like that prediction machine can really be quite influential. So what what were some of the studies you sort of found from a sporting context um, where? what you think's actually happening can be you can sort of manipulate people's brains um, when they think it's maybe xyz temperature and it's actually quite different um, and they perform quite differently
2: yeah I mean that was a great example you know just telling people that it was hotter than it really was actually caused them to um, uh, cause them I think it was cyclists in that case and they um, you know just kind of completely missed their peak performance Um, you know another study that i really like was where they were giving people false feedback about the speed at which they were cycling and the scientists found that um you know telling the the cyclists they were going slower than their optimum than the actual speed they were going uh then just led them to kind of go even faster Um, whereas if you told them they were going slightly faster than they actually were then, you know, they couldn't beat that because they had set a kind of mental limit on what would be possible for their own performance. Um, So I find that really convincing too. Um, But I think, you know, there's also some some other studies looking more generally at, like, our our beliefs about our own capacities, and I think they're really relevant for any athlete. Um, So, you know, um, there was one one study was looking at people's... uh, uh, kind of aerobic capacity so um, they took two tests you know this standard kind of test of aerobic capacity where they were you know measuring um, people's peak performance on a treadmill um, with escalating speeds um, on two separate occasions and after the first test the uh, uh, the researchers just kind of casually mentioned to some of the athletes, half of the athletes "Oh, you perform really well on that, like much better than average. And the others, they didn't plant a negative expectation, they just didn't tell them that they were like, you know, uh, exceptionally good. Uh, what was really interesting then was on this second um, test, those who had been given this positive expectation about their own performance, they subsequently then performed much better than the others it was you know their overall endurance improved their overall aerobic capacity was much better and then follow-up experiments showed that it actually shaped things like the efficiency of their movements so if they believed that they were like naturally good at um, uh, you know doing these um, endurance tests then actually they seem to be moving in a way that um, would allow them to kind of run faster but with um, While well, burning less energy, which Efficient is of course what, yeah, exactly. It's, it's you know increased efficiency is what you want to have when you're doing some kind of challenging event like an Ironman event.
0: Yeah, dealing with negativity, you know, especially a lot of people will go into a workout, kind of working against themselves, being successful in that workout. And you found some really good research on that, and it sounds like you've actually implemented that yourself with fitness.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I mean, there's definitely relevant for anyone, you know, even kind of elite athletes, I think that you, uh, you kind of you, you want to quiet that kind of negative chatter in your head. And I think, you know, it's really easy for you to start to fall into this kind of catastrophic thinking about your own fitness, you know, if you're constantly comparing your performance to someone else, who might be performing better than you. That can then cause you to be more negative about your own kind of body's capacities, and then that can create this kind of uh, vicious cycle where you, you, you know, uh, it through a kind of um, a negative expectation effect, it's reducing your performance. But but I found that actually this is just really useful for you know reluctant exercisers like me who might be carrying a lot of kind of baggage from you know their childhood that's given them negative expectations of exercise and what they can achieve. Um, And that, you know, by removing that kind of baggage, you know, you can start to see a lot more progress and actually enjoy the exercise a lot more. And that's what I've applied myself. And there's good backing for this kind of idea. So there was a study from Stanford University where the researchers had given people a genetic test, a real genetic test that looked at the CREB1 gene, which we know does influence endurance exercise. Um, But they gave the participants sham feedback. So some were told they had the kind of beneficial variant, others were told they had the less beneficial variant, the one that would make them feel more uncomfortable and would reduce their endurance during the exercise. Um, And you know, like those other experiments that I, I described, they found that those expectations had a real impact. And actually, according to some measures of their performance, it was actually more important than the gene itself. So things like the gas exchange within the lungs actually depended more on the expectation than on the actual gene. So, you know, there's a good basis that our expectations are having these effects. And so, you know, when I was applying this to my own life, I just started questioning, you know, this idea that I'm like inherently bad at exercise. And, you know, the truth is that my genes will have an effect. And, you know, I probably couldn't ever have been an Olympic athlete. But that doesn't mean that I couldn't make like, good progress like this science is really clear that the more you exercise the better you'll get at it like you will build strength it's like it has to be the way the body functions or you know we wouldn't have been very successful during our evolution if we didn't get fitter uh, when we needed to exercise when we needed to go on those hunts Um, so I just started thinking about that a bit more and focusing on my own trajectory rather than making those comparisons with other people and always kind of putting myself down And then I also tried to rethink the sensations that I was experiencing during the exercise itself, because you can, I think, especially if you're not used to exercise, it's quite easy for you to, like, read any kind of sign of, of discomfort as a sign that your body's not functioning, that you're no good, you know, that you're just like, you know, either that you're lazy, or just that you're so unfit that you'll never get better. So all of those aches and pains, breathlessness, you know, I really started to to try to avoid those negative um, thinking spirals around all of those sensations and instead look at them for what they really are which is just a sign that I was actually exercising, pushing my body you know close to its limit and that that was beneficial for me That that was what I needed to do to actually make progress and see it as a, a sign that I was building strength and I found that really helpful for me in you know helping me to actually just enjoy the exercise and we see from other studies that you know when you have this change of mindset you know it reduces the perceived exertion while you're exercising and it actually does make it more likely that you're going to release those endorphins so that afterwards you're going to feel really good after the exercise rather than you know um kind of just feeling exhausted and kind of wiped out for the rest of the day
1: Mm, awesome um Well, I think you sort of closed out that chapter talking a bit around sort of visualization and there was some research around some brain scans of athletes that had been done to show that the brain sort of calculates exactly which muscles need to be stimulated when you're doing you know visualization but you you sort of talked about internal imagery um is is a better way of doing that rather than external so can you sort of explain what you mean there and and any sort of tips that you picked up that that athletes or or anybody might find useful with regards to visualization
2: sure i mean you know again i think some athletes have used this really well throughout you know sporting history and michael phelps is a prime example like he didn't really believe that he had a physiological advantage but he did believe that it was his amazing power of visualization that helped him and he would like you know before any event he would visualize in like excruciating detail um all of the twists and turns that he was going to make like you know right down to like the tiniest movement essentially um he was visualizing himself doing the event and and he believed that was you know what allowed him to beat all of the other competitors Um, and the research shows that there really is something in this that when you visualize yourself doing exercise that's actually helping the prediction machine to kind of recalibrate its um uh its kind of perceptions of what it can achieve and also to plan the the optimum movements to achieve the goal that you want to meet um So, you know, that can be for, you know, like fine kind of motor skills, like, you know, playing golf. Um, But actually, it can also be really uh, fundamentally important, you know, just for building strength. Um, The idea here is that when you're simulating those movements, you're mentally simulating them. You're kind of encouraging the prediction machine to recognize that it can afford to employ more muscle fibers within your limbs without kind of damaging itself. And so, you know, when it's, it's planning those movements, it just sends the right signals to make sure you're you're making the most of your muscles rather than being overly conservative, which is really, you know, it's kind of default is to be overly conservative and it's just pushing that kind of limit just just a bit further so that you can um, improve your performance. And and one study, there've been so many studies, and for one study, it was quite small, but it's really telling. They asked these participants to kind of not actually go to the gym, but just to visualise themselves doing some heavy lifting, like lifting a table for a uh, a month or two. And then by the end, they found that these uh, participants had actually um, improved their performance by about, 10%, whereas the participants who had not been doing any of the mental exercise, they were actually a tiny bit weaker than they had been. Um, Now, the nuance in this study was that they did compare internal imagery to external imagery. So, you know, whether you kind of imagined it in the first person, you actually doing the exercise yourself, or whether you kind of were almost like in your mind's eye, you were like the fly on the wall, watching yourself from the outside doing the exercise. Um, That didn't seem to be very effective, it seemed to be much better to actually, you know, be really immersing yourself in your visualisation so you know really imagining that you're actually straining your muscles, like really thinking about what that would feel like within your own body. Um, That's what seemed to be best at kind of changing the prediction machines, um, evaluations of its its own capacity and then helping it to, to plan those muscle movements.
1: Awesome. Now, um, one area of the book you probably could have written about 50 books on is is sort of around uh, nutrition. And I'm sure you get lots of feedback on this and lots of requests about it. Um, But there's some staggering studies that that you you sort of cite. And it's really, I guess, it's more about not so much about what we eat, but a lot of it is to do with our expectations and and controlling those uh, can massively influence how our body responds. You know, it's easily easy to point to people and just, you know, so they, they eat too much, but there's, there's a lot more going on um, inside the brain. So can you give us a couple of fantastic examples around labelling and, and maybe misleading information? Um, some, uh, the example I'm thinking of is there was one around a milkshake. So maybe just sort of talk us through that and um, how just simply labelling something and explaining it differently can have a, a massive impact uh, on a biological level as well as, as obviously in your head.
2: Sure. I mean, so I guess the kind of um, scientific theory behind all of this is that we do have within our gut kind of sensors, you know, that can measure like the stretch of the of the gut, you know, as it fills with food, and you know, you also have nutrient sensors that can, you know, feed the brain this kind of very rough idea of kind of how much food you've consumed. But um, but they are really poor, you know, um, and ambiguous kind of signals that you're you're getting. You know, I mentioned about how the brain can shape the, you know, what we see by kind of tailoring the, the sensory data hitting our eyes. Well, actually, the data from the gut is even more ambiguous than the light patterns on our retina. Um, and so that means that it does need to use things like our, our memories of what we've eaten and our expectations of, of you know, what that food is going to do for us to kind of shape its sense of satiety and, you know, whether it, um, whether it should still feel hunger later on or not. So that's like the basis this idea and there's been plenty of research showing that you know even things like food labeling can shape our expectations of satiety and then that in turn actually shapes how full we feel Um, you know if you give someone a chocolate bar um, or a cookie and you tell them that it's kind of you know high calorie really satisfying um they're going to feel much more um satisfied afterwards compared to when they um if you tell them it's kind of this health bar with like low calories and you know something that's kind of bland but good for you um so we know that that can have a psychological effect it actually shapes the perception of hunger um but what this research with the milkshake showed was that actually this could also shape the hormonal response to the food and the researchers were really looking at the hunger hormone ghrelin so ghrelin stimulates appetite when levels of ghrelin are high you know you have those hunger pangs and you, you kind of want to reach for the cookie jar. You know, when it's low, you know, you feel satisfied you can focus on, on other things. Um, now, what ha- normally happens when we eat a, a satisfying meal is that, um well, it might kind of peak just beforehand because, you know, your hunger's been stimulated by seeing the food in front of you, but then it drops because, you know, your brain and your body then know you don't need to eat for the next few hours. Um, what these researchers did was, Uh, they gave the participants two milkshakes on different occasions. They were exactly the same milkshake, but the labelling was just different. One emphasised, you know, kind of uh, how many calories it had in it. You know, it exaggerated the number of calories to like 600 calories, like you know, enough almost for a small meal. It said how much ice cream had gone into it, how much cream had gone into it, you know, emphasised the delicious chocolate flavour. It was kind of luxurious, you know, all of this all of these words on the packaging made the people feel that it was going to be like a, a really satisfying treat. Um, on the other occasion, they gave them this, uh, the, the labelling for the milkshake was all about the kind of health benefits. It was called like a census shake. And it just emphasised that, you know, you It basically had like 200 calories and, you know, it was quite bland, but would be, you know, uh, it would it would help you to lose weight, essentially. That was what they were focusing on, what it didn't have rather than what it did have. Um, and the researchers showed that that shaped the ghrelin response quite remarkably. So for the people who had the uh, kind of, when the when the people had the luxurious shake, you know, full of calories, full of cream, full of fat, um, they actually sh- saw that rising ghrelin and then the dramatic drop straight after they'd eaten it. Um, for the people with the eating this scentsy shake, the ghrelin levels just barely changed at all. It was as if they hadn't eaten. And that's really profound, I think, for all of the times that we, you know, if we're trying to lose weight and you kind of go into the supermarket and you're focusing only on the low number of calories in the food and you might choose like a, a diet food that you're not really gonna enjoy, but just because it's kind of slimming, you know, you're creating that sense of deprivation. And that could then change things like the ghrelin levels within your body that will mean that actually you're going to feel these hunger pains, uh you know, much more strongly later on in the day, which is mean you're going to be so much more tempted to kind of snack after having had your meal than if you had something with the same number of calories, but that, you know, had really emphasised the kind of enjoyment and pleasure that you were having from that food. Um, so that's something we really need to bear in mind. I think if we are trying to lose weight or even if you're just trying to maintain a stable weight is that you know we should see our meals as a kind of celebration and that actually you know when we're dieting pleasure is a really important ingredient in the foods that we're consuming.
1: Mm. What I like with the, the chapters all the chapters you do is you sort of do a nice little summary at the end of each chapter which kind of gives some some action points so you know guys, what you're going to find in this book is lots and lots of case studies, you know, science based case studies, um, evidence based, and then there's nice summaries at the end and and especially in that sort of nutrition chapter, there's definitely some takeaways you can have. uh, I'm trying to lose a few kilos myself at the moment and there's a few little (coughs) bits and pieces that i picked up there and it's uh, made a nice little difference uh, just thinking, as David said, thinking about what you're eating, think about what you've eaten, um, avoiding distractions like watching TV when you're eating, so he's got lots of good practical advice so david i could probably talk to you for for a couple of hours um but guys what you want to be doing is actually going out and, and reading this book uh, i think yeah. you'll all find it fascinating um it's called the expectation effect um we'll have links to it on the on our website um and i know you've also got a couple of other titles that you've done as well david so yeah awesome um we'll have to get you doing a triathlon at some stage uh, your expectations <laughs> will be honed in you'll be you'll be on fire um but no th- uh, Thanks so much for your time and any, any sort of final comments for for the athletes out there.
2: Uh, I just think that um, the the big lesson that I learned here was that when I'm exercising is to see it as a kind of um, not just training my body, but training my mind. And if I have a bad, you know, a day where my performance is really below par, like not to catastrophize that or to feel too anxious about that, but actually to just kind of be compassionate with myself and to, to tell myself that actually, you know, maybe that is just what my body needed at that stage. And that actually, you know, you need to listen to your body, but then, you know, I can still go into the next session feeling that I can still have those optimum expectations and basically to focus on my trajectory. So, you know, my path, you know, from week to week, month to month, rather than getting too focused on every single session. Um, and I think that's just like quite good advice in general um, for athletics, but also for, you know, all things in life actually, is that we can't always be performing at our best. Well, I and mean, that's the thing, isn't it? All these lessons are transferable to many different areas, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, and I think the same skills that you might learn you know, um, changing your mindset around um, your kind of sports performance could equally be really useful, like if you're, you know, trying to kind of improve your performance in your job or if you're kind of a student at university, you know, changing your academic performance. is really transferable. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. Thanks so much
2: for your time, David. No, thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Righto team, hopefully you enjoyed that interview. So again, the author is David Robson. The book is The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life. And I'll put a link to his book and his website in the show notes for today's show notes. Uh, I'm going to pretty much wrap things up there today because I, again, I've, I'm actually jumping on the plane tomorrow morning. But have got a few more jobs I need to get done before I go away. It's so one of the downfalls of owning a business is that to have a holiday, you've got to get all your work done before you go. And then when you get back, you gotta go and get catch up mode. Or to be honest, I don't know if that's just a small business owner. I think a lot of people that's kind of life nowadays. Especially if you want to do that thing of actually shutting off. You know, like when I go on holiday, I don't want to be checking my phone all the time. I don't want to be, you know doing work and so you know if you want to have a holiday you've almost got to do that process so i've got a few more things i need to get done today but that's okay now if you want to support the show go to bevanjamesis.com click on uh, podcast support me go through the patron process and you can deliver some of your hard-earned money my way if you want to get my new book i will make you passionate about exercise go to passionaboutexercise.com also please 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 spread the word, and if you can, because uh, the one like this book is doing so well, I'm just haven't had enough Amazon reviews yet. So if you could take a couple minutes just to jump on Amazon and give a review about the book or Audible.com. That'd be really, really great. Even if it's just going, giving a star rating, you know, I'd really appreciate it because it just helps me get the word out there. Um, other than that, I'll be back in a couple of weeks from now with the next episode. and It'll be a Bevan show. I'll go dip in something at that stage. Anyway, as always, keep being you and I'll see you next time.